Homo Sapiens, I Hear You is a nonlinear and nonconventional research seminar held at ADO in Brooklyn, New York. Each month, ADO and an updated panel of experts will break down human essential needs and then question if those needs can be addressed through design. The seminar is created in partnership with Nellie Benign Studios. ADO is a design institution in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Its mission is to explore the boundaries and future of design. ADO is an initiative of many and reflects the company's fundamental belief that designers hold the key to progress. For more information or to attend a research seminar, visit a-d-o.com. This is Elle Clay, and I want to welcome you to Homo Sapiens I Hear You, a monthly podcast exploring human behavior and physiological needs through conversations and stories from innovators and thought leaders. As a foundational need, food is something that we think about less. Like sleeping when we're tired, we tend not to think about food until it's time to eat. But do we think about what we are eating? For many of us, there is a major disconnect between what we eat and how it's grown and manufactured. Boneless, skinless, shrink-wrapped, pre-cut, and waiting in a cooler. What better place to debate our basic needs and rituals than over a dinner? My guests tonight include an anthropologist, a magazine editor, an artist, an actor, and a master distiller. This is a potluck dinner. As technology advances and statistics of overpopulation leading to possible food shortage looms, I find myself wondering what the future of food looks like. The complex relationship between food and the act of eating is where I had to start. Growing up in the South, some of my earliest memories revolved around food. Food is family. Food is love. Food is ritual. We connect with those long gone with recipes and practices passed down. If the design of our food changed, will those rituals live on? What better place to debate our basic needs and rituals than over a dinner? Lenny, welcome Lenny. Welcome Mark. Gillian, here you go. Kevin. Finally, here come Daisy. Welcome, come on in. Come and have dinner. I am Dr. Nelly Benayoun. Welcome to a potluck dinner. To start our dinner off, Mark Greenfield, artistic director of the Faux Real Theater, leads us in a toast. In the spirit of Dionysus, I would like to invite you all to enjoy this evening, to enjoy your meal, and of course, to enjoy your wine. Just so you understand, Dionysus is a loving, wonderful God, and Dionysus is a ferocious and terrifying God. So in this evening, you might argue with somebody, You might hug somebody, you might kiss somebody, but what the god Dionysus would want would be for you to embrace this evening in its totality, to experience it to its fullest, and that includes the chaos, and that includes the wonder, and that includes the joy. Mark's stage version of the Bacchae centered on the god of wine and ritual madness, Dionysus. What would a dinner party be like with him? If we were going to have a dinner party dedicated to Dionysus, something would happen that we didn't expect and plates would be broken, and ideas would be destroyed, and then they would be reborn again. Potluck's history traces back as far as the Middle Ages, but it wasn't until the late 19th and early 20th century in America that the idea of a meal where everyone brings a prepared dish to be shared took hold. Potluck has seamlessly entered into my daily lexicon. Food language can be learned, but is often mindlessly adopted. What other languages do I speak? Al dente. Misenplas, Chiffonade. I'm multilingual. Julian Kavanaugh, an anthropologist specializing in food and language, helped break down the connection. 
I think there's a couple different ways that it happened. One is through waves of Italian immigration. Tons and tons of Italians came to the U.S. starting in like the 1890s through through the 1920s and then at different times since then. And they brought their food. They brought their food and they brought their language. Uh, lots of them came to New York and to um, New Jersey, other parts of the East Coast. Some of them went further west. But... Um, they so I think that was the first place was they brought their food they brought their language and that's where we have a lot of things like um, you know in Brooklyn you hear people say mortadelle and prosciutto and stuff like that and and that's actually from that's not standard Italian that's from uh, Sicilian and from uh, Neapolitan from their local languages you would never sit down and eat with Italians without at least one person if not everybody at the table saying buon appetito. And it's just, it's the way that every meal starts. And whether it's kind of a, a very public, like everyone says, buon appetito, as you would see in like a movie, or just kind of muttering it to themselves as they start to eat, you know, next to a coworker, just say, buon appetito. So I think there's a way that, I mean, that marks not just that you're eating, but you're eating together, right? That eating is, is a social thing. Every culture tends to think their connection to food is unique. What was the common thread from my grandmother baking biscuits in Alabama to a bubby making matzo balls or an abuela making tamales. More wine? There's this really cool research that um, some anthropologists did where they compared um, white middle-class American families in Los Angeles and middle-class Italian families in Rome and Naples. And all the families had little kids, one kid at least under the age of three and then at least one other sibling. And they were really interested in how people learn to eat and how, what's the language around food and, and does it matter? And one of the really cool things that they found was that people learn taste in their families. That in, in really kind of obvious ways, right? What you get fed in your family is what you learn to like or dislike. But they also learned that the language around that food really shapes what you think you like or what you don't like. So one of the big things that they found was that in Italian families, Everyone, there's a recognition that everyone has their own tastes. There's an Italian saying, uh, i gusti non si discutono. One doesn't discuss somebody else's tastes. And there's an expectation that kids, as individuals, will have their own tastes. Not that kids only like certain things, but that everybody likes different things. You like this kind of cheese, I like that kind of cheese. You like this kind of, you like asparagus and I like cauliflower. You like this kind of pasta that grandma makes and I like that kind of pasta that grandma makes. But and so they recognize that and they cook for it. They cook for all these different tastes. In American families, and this may or may not sound familiar, there was this understanding that kids are different than adults. Kids like different things, and they're not going to like the things that adults like, maybe until, until they're later. And so parent, and this happened for both kinds of families in the talk, that they would, that the Italian families would say, oh, what do you like about this? And can you believe that, that we have clams tonight for dinner? And of course, I know you really love clams and you'll eat them. But there was a lot of kind of like grooming the individual taste through talk. The, the adults in the American families would say things like, oh, I don't think you're going to like this. And oh, no, 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 let's give the kids something else. This will be too much for them. Or no, 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 I don't think you're old enough to like this yet. And so the kids got socialized into eating as kids. Right. And that became their status in the family. And, and the kids would like align with each other against the adults. We don't like this. You made us eat this. And then we have to, you know, and, and, and the adults in doing that would often set it up so that the kids were only in it for the dessert. 
right? We know, right? Kids only like sweets. But they learned to like sweets. There's nothing kid-like about sweets. It was that the parents would say, we know you're not going to like this broccoli, but... If you eat four pieces of broccoli, you can have your ice cream, right? And so the kids learned, that's what I'm supposed to do as a kid, is like not like the broccoli, but eat it so I can get to the ice cream. That's what I'm supposed to like. And the Italian kids, they didn't have dessert. They just ate what they were supposed to eat. So, all right, so this, this is a really specific story about these two kinds of groups. But I think it also shows how... In our families, we learn, I mean, we learn tastes, right? We learn the things that we like. What's more personal than like, I hate broccoli or I love ice cream. But that comes from our families. That comes from the talk we have around them. And I I think that's the thing that's universal, mostly universal. I can think of a couple examples. But, you know, we eat together. Humans are social animals, but we do it through eating together and talking together and preparing food for each other, right? Everyone's got a grandma who cooks for them and who loves them, who talks to them. And if it's not a grandma, then it's somebody else who does it. So I think that's what's universal is that we, we share food, we make it for each other, we talk about it, and in doing that, we make family. Starting in 2010, I began a four-year journey of working in food starting as a line cook and ending as a recipe developer for a small batch soda company. Food went from being something that sustained me and comforted me to a craft and science. Biting into a dry-aged steak, seeing an egg whose yolk was golden yellow, testing and observing the process of making vanilla extract and brining lemons. My senses had been awakened in almost a single bite. I was more conscious of where my food came from. Lynn Yee Ryan, the editor of Mold Magazine, had a similar story. My signature dish is brisket, Texas-style barbecue brisket. I've actually started my kind of food journey as a barbecue entrepreneur. Uh, here in New York, we have the Brooklyn Flea. And um, in 2008, I started doing Texas-style barbecue brisket sandwiches at the Brooklyn Flea. I started Mold in 2010, and through that, I... You know, I always knew that there was a lot of questions around sustainability when it came to meat, and especially meat in uh, raised in an industrial context. And I started Mold because I was very interested in how designers might help shape what we eat and drink in the future. Through this process, I learned a little bit uh, that the UN had put out this white paper, um, and I think it was in 2012, and it was all about how by the year 2050, we won't be able to feed the 9 billion people on this planet. And designers, um, as a design journalist, I am super interested in how designers approach this question around problem solving. So designers with their human-centered process and um, with their training to solve questions um, really are the perfect group of professionals to offer different types of solutions at different scales for the coming food crisis. Lynn Yee's designer instincts had led her over a new threshold in her way of thinking of food, one I'd never considered. What other food-related areas could design impact in the near future? In the second issue of the magazine, there's a chef named Charles Michel, and he writes about the importance of eating with our hands and how Uh, As designers, we should really consider how do we design intimacy into our daily rituals? And um, eating with your hands is one way that you actually design intimacy into your relationship with with food. So he argues that the most successful 
uh, food establishments are ones where you eat with your hands. So you think about McDonald's, there's no utensils really. Uh, pizza, global export, also no utensils. So how do we think about these kind of business models and then also think about the future of food and the need for us to be more intimate with our food? Maybe that's on one level, knowing where our food comes from, but on the another level, not being scared to actually touch our food, touch one another, uh, share food uh, with one another. Maybe, you know, we're grabbing for things and our fingers are touching. I mean, I think that's such a small thing, but also very, um, I think, very powerful. Um, one thing to remember is that eating is one of the only things we do besides sex that actually engages all of our senses. So knowing that about this very kind of mundane act, this very necessary act, um, I think is really critical when thinking about what the future might bring when we talk about food and dining and eating and drinking. Speaking of the future and food in terms of design felt a bit sterile to me. I grew up sitting at the counter watching vigilantly as my mother cooked and baked from scratch. Would I still be able to replicate some of my childhood favorites in 20 years? What did that look like? What the future of food is going to include is biotechnology. Um, you mentioned Impossible Burger, and Impossible Burger is not a veggie burger. Impossible Burger is a biotech company that produces a food product. And they do that by taking vegetable proteins and vegetable uh, cells, basically, and kind of reverse engineering certain qualities of uh, what we call tr more traditional or historical meat, right? So they are engineering for color, for texture, for flavor. Um, I think that you mentioned something about grandma's meatloaf, which I love because another thing that we have to really think about that's very layered into eating and dining is that it's not just mu about delivering nutrients. It's about being transported, uh, comforted. It's emotional, right? Like you have a flavor, you smell something, you taste something, and it makes you think of home. It makes you think of somebody you love. It makes you think of a moment where there was something shared, or maybe it was makes you think of something um, that was surprising in the past. You know, I think that this idea of food memory is very, very critical. And it's something that a lot of kind of chefs from fine dining to, you know, home cooked kind of dining concepts have really conjured and like really um, capitalized on. And so when thinking about the future of food, I think it's really important for those people who are trying to offer new types of ingredients and um, new options for how and what we're going to eat to remember that food is memory, that food is emotion, that food is cultural. Artist, director, and writer Dr. Daisy Ginsburg echoes some of the same sentiments. However, her interest in the areas of design went much deeper. My signature dish would probably be an engineered probiotic drink. So that's something that I started a project about back in 2009 with another designer, James King, and we were imagining what it would be like to drink engineered organisms that would colonize your gut and perhaps make you poo different colors. 
So we came up with this project in 2009 when we'd been working with students who were entering something called the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition at MIT, and they made bacteria produce different color pigments. And our project was just a critical aesthetic intervention. And now we're in 2018, and there is a company in Boston called Synlogic that is making engineered probiotics. Your poo isn't colored quite yet, but it, um, they're, they're kind of making the first steps towards these kinds of new technologies where the gut becomes a design space. They're interested in engineering organisms that could treat certain diseases or be diagnostics, and that's what we were first originally interested in. What would it be like to go to the supermarket to buy something that would be able to test if you had cancer, for example? So could it be engineered to detect signals of different diseases in your gut. So bacteria that's able to you know, notice if you had inflammation or cancerous signal coming out, then you would poo a color to alert you to the fact. We've been warned of the dangers of GMO or genetically modified foods. I was confused. What was the difference between the two designs? What is a good GMO? What's a bad GMO? I mean, what we're talking about is something that's been engineered at the DNA level to do something useful. And I think you've got to look at it in context. So maybe it's okay to have a trait in a plant that's been engineered, but what is that? how has that plant grown? Is it a monoculture that's going to be actually much more detrimental to the environment, like a huge amount of corn where biodiversity in that farm is actually depleted? Or are there ways to use it more sensitively, which could actually help reduce other kinds of pesticide use or chemical use? So I think it's... Um, you know, breeding of plants is something we've done for thousands of years. I'm not advocating for or against GMOs, but I think what's much more interesting to debate is who owns the technology, how is it used, and what benefits can be brought by actually using these kinds of things. Can we farm in a more sustainable way? And I think that's a really interesting area around GMO use. I think it's, I mean, food is a really complicated issue to talk about, and there's so many different interests at play. What worries me, so I spend quite a lot of time with people who are trying to engineer meat, for example, trying to grow meat in a Petri dish. And my problem with those arguments is that, you know, they say it's more sustainable, that we can, you know, cows are bad for the environment, they fart, they are polluting, um, it's really inefficient use of energy to, you know, so much water and food goes into a cow to make a steak. Could we just grow things in the lab instead? And I think that that's really problematic because those are also really resource-intensive technologies. And maybe it's better that we switch to a plant-based diet and actually stop trying to find these industrial substitutes. And then the language around what's coming in is really complicated as well. So there's a rebranding of lab-grown meat that's um, coming under the banner of clean meat. And I think that's really dangerous in a way, because you know, why does that mean that other meat is dirty or that other food is dirty? And that starts to, you know, all food comes from the ground and that's a good place for food to come from. It's grown from the earth. And so if we start to say, well, only processed foods are clean, then I think we get into some really difficult territory. And you have to ask, well, what are the interests of the people investing in it? Why are they investing in those technologies and not in ways to solve the food chain and food wastage, for example, which are, you know, be ways that we could use the same resources in a much more effective way. Daisy explored the versatility of food. Maybe we didn't have to invent something new. Perhaps we should just be looking at things through a different lens. I find that food, so I've only done a few projects around food, and I find that it's a really 
good way to explore um, ideas because it's so visceral and because we all need to eat. So uh, I curated a project where Christina Agapakis, who's a scientist, synthetic biologist, worked with Cecil Tolas, who's an artist who works with smell, and they made cheese out of my armpit bacteria. And this became known as, the project was called Self Made, but it's also known as the Human Cheese Project. And this is an incredibly powerful tool for talking about disgust, for talking about context, for talking about um, how we see our own microbiome and ourselves in relation to what we eat. And this project had value in the scientific setting and also in the cultural setting. So Christina wrote about it in her, her Harvard PhD, and it also became you know, news and in museums and, and as a way for people to actually think about you know, why is bacteria on our feet gross, but the same bacteria in our cheese good? Um, how do we think about the context of things living together? How do we think about ourselves in relation to this invisible world around us? So I think food can be incredibly powerful as a way to get people asking these questions and responding, I guess, with a gut instinct. Enough with all this talk of the future of food. Let's change the topic of discussion. This is an absinthe interlude. Absinthe is an alcoholic beverage made from anise and assorted botanicals. This misunderstood tonic was banned years ago, as it had a reputation of causing hallucinations. With its resurgence, we connect and experience the tradition of its story past. So absinthe was originally developed in the late 1700s as a prevention for malaria. The uh, French uh, soldiers, when they went off to Morocco, they were fighting the wars out there, um, they believed that you got uh, malaria from drinking contaminated water. So they took their absinthe along, they poured it in the water they found in the streams, uh, in their canteen, and sweetened it with sugar, and they drank that, and they started to feel real good, actually. So when they came back to France, so did the absinthe, uh, love of absinthe come along with them, and all the cafes started pouring absinthe, uh, and fancy mixology type of uh, equipment was used to, to serve the absinthe. Uh, and that became the cool thing to do, kind of like the mixology of the time today. Um, and then over a period of time, uh, when absinthe became illegal, as I mentioned, that French wine industry smear campaign, uh, absinthe was uh, illegal for 95 years. Uh, in 2007 in the U.S., it was re-legalized. And absinthe distilleries such as us started popping up and making good, clean uh, absinthe, which is similar to a gin, but very much more a heavy licorice flavor uh, with the fennel and the anise. But the process is similar to a gin. And today you can enjoy absinthe just as you did uh, back in the day. When my wife and I were living in Harlem uh, six years ago and we had the bottom floor of a brownstone and we had the full basement to ourselves. Uh, and I started home distilling, making whiskey and moonshine and a couple different things. And then I said, let me make some absinthe, uh, which I did. And all our friends loved it and enjoyed it. So we formed a company, Doc Herson's Natural Spirits. And we started with the green traditional absinthe as our first product. And we did that because no one in New York City was making absinthe, but there was a ton of other craft spirits out there. So we said we we're going to fill that, that void, and we created a nice little niche um, with, with our absinthe products. Just preparing a glass of absinthe was a ritual in itself. 
So the way that uh, the traditional uh, way that they drank absinthe in Paris at the cafes when they came back from that war I described earlier was they would uh, pour the absinthe uh, into a glass, set a slotted sh- uh, spoon on top of the glass and put a sugar cube on top and drip ice water in there to uh, dilute the absinthe and sweeten it. Oftentimes, though, that's what most people know, but oftentimes you didn't have to add sugar to absinthe if it was correctly and well-made. Uh, the same thing happened with rye. People would would add rock candy, so sugar, to their rye to make it taste better because sugar taste makes a lot of things taste better. Um, so that's the most common ritual that people know with the sugar cube and the ice water drip, but it's not entirely necessary to do that. You can enjoy absinthe simply over uh, ice or it's included in a number of different cocktails today. My potluck dinner was a success. I began the evening with a bleak outlook on the future of food. My concern that my heritage would die if my recipes and ingredients weren't engineered had subdued. Looking to the past seemed to be working for modern distilleries. I had hoped that the designers and slow farming industries would find a way to come together to keep the soul in food. I got you, L. I'll do the dishes. On the next Homo sapiens, I hear you. We will explore air, wind, and lungs as we dissect the mechanism of life itself, oxygen, in our March series, Breathe It In.